0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardik.
0: It's Thursday, October 29th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: A whole lot of people thought this was the week we'd get pivotal data on the first vaccine for COVID-19 that didn't happen and we'll explain why.
0: And as the U.S. enters the fall, the country is experiencing another surge of COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations. Brown University public health expert Ashish Jha joins us to discuss the alarming COVID-19 trends.
2: Stat has passed through a pretty significant milestone slash birthday this week. So we've invited top boss Rick Burke to join us for a small celebration and a few rounds of stat trivia.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor.
2: Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. The coronavirus pandemic has prompted the healthcare community to find new approaches to help. The COVID-19 Plasma Alliance includes 13 companies developing a medicine made from plasma that may become an important COVID-19 treatment. I'm here with Julie Kim from Takeda, who co-leads the alliance. Julie, what are the advantages of working together as an alliance?
1: Hi Angus, thanks for the question. The Alliance is developing a medicine called a hyperimmune that's made with convalescent plasma from people who survived COVID-19 because their plasma contains special antibodies that can fight off the disease. We're combining our expertise and infrastructure to develop it faster, to make more of it, and potentially save more lives. We also joined The Fight Is In Us, a coalition that is creating broader public awareness of the urgent need for convalescent plasma donation than would have been possible as individual companies. So please visit thefightisinus.org to
0: learn how you can help.
3: Uh, we do expect, we have a very good chance, that uh, we will uh, have a conclusive efficacy readout of our phase three before the end of October. Our model, our base case predicts that we will have an answer in by the end of October. We have quite a good chance, more than 60 percent, that we will know if the product works or not by the end of October.
2: That was a sound of Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla explaining at various points in 2020 that his company could have all important data on its COVID-19 vaccine before the end of this month.
0: Tuesday just so happened to be Pfizer's third quarter earnings presentation. So the entire biopharmaceutical world woke up and tuned in to Borla in hopes that this might be that long promised day at the end of October.
1: And it was not. Here's how Borla explained it on Tuesday.
3: Let me try five. I'm not bullish that the vaccine will work. I'm cautiously optimistic that the vaccine will work. What I said very clearly, it is that we may know by the end of October if it works or not.
2: So Meg, what happened here? Where are those data?
0: Well, the key to all of this is what's called an interim analysis, which is when independent data monitors take a look at the results of a clinical trial and recommend whether it should keep going. In Pfizer's case, the company said that the first interim analysis of its vaccine trial will happen when there are 32 cases of COVID-19 among the study's volunteers. At that point, the data monitors will look at the results, and if they decide the vaccine is working really well or if it's not working at all, Pfizer will tell the world about it.
1: So the news this week, to the extent there was any, is that Pfizer's trial hasn't hit that 32 case mark, which is why Borla had no data to disclose and a lot of explaining to do to the frustrated analysts on the conference call. So what are we supposed to do with this information or lack of information?
0: Well, Pfizer's message seemed to be be patient. Now, the company didn't disclose just how many cases of COVID-19 there had been so far, which means it could be as many as 31, which would mean the interim analysis really could happen any day now. Or it could be literally zero, which means who knows when we're going to get data.
1: And beyond that, Pfizer told us that they're only going to tell us about that interim analysis if the results are, as Borla phrased it, conclusive, which means the independent monitors say either basically this vaccine works or this vaccine definitely does not work. If the recommendation is to just keep the trial going to get more data, to reach a more conclusive answer, Pfizer will not be putting out a press release.
0: I feel like that message actually is getting really lost, um, that it's possible they're not going to say anything at all if the data aren't either really great or really terrible. Then they're just going to keep going. And it'll be later in November, probably when we find out about it.
1: Yeah, the take home message, I guess, from Tuesday's call was kind of, you'll know when the data are good and ready. And so what we have to prepare for is just presumably one day we'll wake up in the morning and there'll be a Pfizer press release declaring that the vaccine works or the vaccine doesn't work. And as to when that'll be, I mean, you know, we can look at escalating case counts and make assumptions based on, you know, where Pfizer's trial is enrolling. But all of this is kind of a black box into which we're gazing. And it's it's interesting because, I mean, in the context, as we mentioned, Albert Bourla had mentioned that late October was possible. The president had promised a vaccine by Election Day, which, of course, is only days away. Um, and yet here we are at the end of October, kind of in the same boat we were in a couple months ago. And Do you think all of this kind of intense obsession over these, you know, timelines
2: down to the hours and days, minutes of when we may see these COVID-19 vaccines, does it really matter in the long run? I mean, I guess I, I realize that we're journalists who cover this kind of stuff. You know, we have to be on top of this, right? And we look at the minutiae and we look at, you know, we parse every word that Albert Bourla speaks or Moderna CEO speaks about this. But what do you think the general public thinks about all this? I mean, how are they viewing it?
0: Well, I think it's probably just more confusing than it even needs to be because really this has no bearing on the timing of when Pfizer will file for an emergency use authorization. That's because the FDA requires 2 months of safety follow-up once half the volunteers in the trial have had their second shot. So, it's super easy to follow, but Pfizer has said they'll reach that point in the 3rd week of November. So, if they have good data at that point, that's when they would file with the FDA. So it really doesn't matter if they get data now or if they get data in the second and a half week of November, the when they file for FDA clearance is the same no matter what.
2: Yeah, you know, and to take that one step further, it probably doesn't matter all that much to, you know, the average person in this country in terms of when they would actually get a vaccine, like when they would be able to make an appointment and get vaccinated. I mean, these things are obviously certainly very important to investors, as we mentioned, and analysts who are, you know, kind of going over all this stuff. But like for most people, you know, this is not going to make a difference. You know, one day, one week, or another, when most Americans will have access to the vaccine in terms of being able to get vaccinated.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point. You know, Meg, as you mentioned, it would be an emergency use authorization, which most likely would would clear the vaccine for distribution among people most in need or essential workers, and speaking as one of the country's many deeply inessential workers, that won't really have that much of an effect on my day-to-day life. And I think in personal conversations with people I know, I always try to underscore that like when, whether it be the CEO of Pfizer or the President of the United States says we will have a vaccine by a certain date, they're not really talking about me or you, you know, and most people I'm talking to, getting vaccinated. That's something that would, even in the best case scenario, be deeper into 2021. I guess the other thing, maybe why there is an obsession around these data is that, you know, we as a society are kind of grasping for whatever might give us hope. So if we get positive interim data on a vaccine, even if we all understand that for most of us, it will not be available to us for some number of months, just knowing it's out there, I think, you know, will help people sleep at night, or at least maybe plan a future summer vacation that they had to cancel in 2020.
2: Damien, you make a good point, and I'm going to uh, text that to all the family members who keep asking me when they're going to be able to get a vaccine. A very 2020 thing is that we now have a group of people who've become pandemic celebrities. I'm sure they'd prefer not to have that moniker, but the fact is public health experts are now well-known faces on TV news and well-known voices on your favorite podcasts.
0: Among them is Dr. Ashish Jha, who's now dean of Brown University's School of Public Health. He has more Twitter followers than Adam and Damien combined, and he's particularly helpful at cutting through the noise and explaining what's happening with COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Jha.
3: Thank you so much for having me
1: on. So we've been hearing for months that things could get really bad in the fall, and now it's the fall and things are really bad. So we're recording more than 70,000 new cases a day in the U.S., and the number of deaths recorded each day is now rising again, though not as high as it was in the spring. What do you see is happening now that's driving this new surge?
3: Yeah, so I do think we're in a pretty tough spot as we kind of come to the end of October. I think a few things are, are driving this. One is It is starting to get a little bit colder. The virus is a little bit more efficient as a spreader in the, in cold air. But more importantly, people are spending more time indoors. Um, there's certainly a certain amount of pandemic fatigue that has set in because we've been at this for a long time. And I think people are getting tired of not seeing family and friends. And so we're letting our guard down. And, you know, this far into the pandemic. Uh, There's still a lot of confusion and misinformation about what the right things to do are, whether masks work or not, they do. And so that combination of things in a context of a policy environment that hasn't built up the testing infrastructure we need, that hasn't really done the things that we needed as a country, is why we find ourselves where we are.
0: So the messaging from the administration is often that We basically just need to get through this period of the pandemic until we have a vaccine and better drugs. So is that the right message? Is the vaccine going to be like a light switch and, and suddenly we're done? Or is this a longer slog out than we're really prepared for right now?
3: This has been probably the most frustrating thing or one of the most frustrating things for me is that part of leadership is communicating timelines effectively. Instead of saying, this is going to go away, the summer is going to make it go away, it'll go away in April, we're rounding the turn. What that does is it says to people, you don't have to make medium and long-term investments because you just got to get through the next few weeks. And then the next few weeks come and things are worse, and people keep getting caught off guard. We all wish that we have a vaccine that's 98% effective, everybody takes it in America, and the pandemic essentially comes to a halt. That is not gonna happen as much as I wish it was the case. If we're lucky, the vaccine will be 70%, 80% effective. If we're super lucky, 60% of Americans will take it and it will make a real difference. It will not bring a pandemic to an end. We're still going to have to do certain things. We're going to have this disease with us for a very long time. Uh, We should just level with the American people and tell them that.
1: So we hear the term pandemic fatigue a lot, and certainly we all feel it. And and looking at the numbers, it's easy to feel hopeless. But in your opinion, is it possible for the country to
3: turn these numbers around? And if so, what would that entail? So absolutely possible to turn things around. And I I expect and hope that we're going to see state leadership Uh, That's going to help it turn around. First of all, I think we've got to push more on mask wearing. Even in states where there are mandates, you know, it's kind of unevenly enforced. And I'm not a big enforcement guy, but I am a big guy in like public communication and trying to get people to really cut through the disinformation to wear masks. I think that'll help a lot. Uh, In most parts of the country, that alone won't do it just because the pandemic and the outbreaks are so bad. I think states could still be doing more on making testing widely available. States are struggling. Congress has got to get money to states to do this. But I think testing capacity and I should say testing technology has improved so much that we can make widespread testing much more widely available. And then I think we have to make some basic policy decisions. You know, In Massachusetts, where I live, uh, casinos are open. Like casinos maybe just shouldn't be open during this pandemic. And I, I know they are casino workers and like we should find a way to support them, but we should not have casinos open in the middle of a pandemic. We just can't afford it. Not this one.
0: We mentioned pandemic fatigue, but there's also a term that Dr. Mike Osterholm at the University of Minnesota calls pandemic anger. Up to a third of the country in his estimation that believes the pandemic is a hoax or isn't as serious as people like you are telling us it is. And at a recent rally, the president played into this, suggesting that doctors and hospitals are overcounting COVID-19 deaths because they get more money if they code for COVID versus people's comorbidities. Is there any Any chance hospitals are inflating the true numbers of deaths caused by COVID?
3: Yeah, so it's frustrating because this has been around for a long time, this argument that somehow uh, we're either making up numbers or people are dying with COVID, but not of COVID, that there is this massive financial uh, incentive. So let's talk about what the financial incentive is, and then let's talk about uh, what is actually happening. So there is a 20% bump in payment for Medicare uh, for hospitals uh, if they have somebody with COVID pneumonia or COVID respiratory failure. And and why did Congress do this? And why did the president sign that bill into, into law? Is because uh, we knew that taking care of COVID patients was gonna be potentially more costly, more difficult, and that it was gonna require a lot more personal protective equipment. We knew hospitals would have to go out and buy those things because they weren't gonna get it from the federal government. Now, hospitals are famous at maximizing revenue and finding everything they can possibly code legitimately. What hospitals largely don't do is wide scale fraud. They don't take somebody who comes in uh, with a pneumonia and say that person actually had a heart attack. They don't do that because, <laughs> first of all, I do think most of the hospital administrators have a certain sense of moral ethics. Um, doctors won't do it because it, they would lose their license. It's unethical. It's immoral. And also, by the way, it's super easy to get caught. Like, literally, hospitals get audited all the time. And if you get caught doing that kind of stuff, you go to jail. And most people would rather not go to jail for a couple of grand. So that's not what's happening. What is happening, of course, is that if somebody does have COVID, that people are incentivized to test and find those people and identify them. And that's good. We want that. But then there are these like Facebook stories of the person who had a car accident and was COVID positive and got classified as death from a COVID pneumonia. Like, first of all, Most random people don't have COVID at any given moment. Uh, If you have a car accident and are COVID positive, you don't get a bonus payment. And the idea that you would take somebody into a car accident and call them a COVID pneumonia is absurd clinically. And so I'm not saying it has never happened. I am absolutely certain it is not commonplace. It is not what explains why we are where we are. And we keep looking for these explanations when the explanation for 225,000 deaths and 8 million cases... It's pretty straightforward. We haven't controlled the pandemic. We've got a lot of sick people. They're dying. Like, Instead of dealing with that, we keep coming up with like random theories of what's going on.
2: Many countries in Europe this week are tightening restrictions amid surging cases. Uh, Both Germany and France, for instance, have closed businesses like bars and restaurants, but are keeping schools open. You know, that's in contrast to some states in the U.S., which have done the opposite. So how do you think about those decisions from a public health standpoint?
3: Yeah, this is uh, another, I think, source of frustration for many of us in public health. Um, you know, back in the summer when we were talking about schools, there was a lot of uncertainty about what to do with schools. And certainly, uh, when you looked across at Europe and places that you know in in Middle East and Israel and South Korea that had schools open, they largely were able to do it with much lower levels of virus in the community. And so I think many of us said, suppress the virus, then open the schools because, Opening schools is critically important. What has been interesting in the U.S. is lots of places have opened schools in places I would not have recommended that they do so. Shockingly, uh, despite all my Twitter followers, not everybody listens to me. Um, And it turns out a lot of places opened up and they're doing okay. Like we're not finding that schools are driving a lot of outbreaks. And what it says to me is I was probably being too cautious. And so here we are, and again, picking on Massachusetts. Boston public schools are closed, uh, but restaurants and casinos are open. And I think that's completely the wrong set of priorities. I I think Europe has mishandled all of this virus over the last couple of months, but on this one, they're completely getting it right. If you're gonna start with closing things, close bars and restaurants, support those workers, but keep schools open. We're not seeing much data that schools are a source of of spread, of major spread in in the community. They're not driving the infections.
0: So I guess our last question for you is is one that we all want to know, but we're all sort of afraid to hear the answer to. When do you think life truly gets back to normal?
3: Ah, so truly is the key question. And normal, I guess, is the other part of it. I believe next summer is going to be much, much better than this summer. I suspect that a vast majority of Americans who want to get vaccinated will be vaccinated by, I don't know, April, May, June. And therefore, next summer, we should be able to do some amount of indoor dining much more comfortably. The question is, concert halls, uh, movie theaters. I can imagine next fall going to a movie, but I'm going to be wearing a mask. Uh, And it'll be driven a little bit by how much uh, virus there is in the community, but I'm hoping that there won't be much. You know, kind of getting to a point where you can be indoors with large number of people, no mask wearing, that may be a couple of years away. But I think we can get a long way there and and a couple of years away because it's probably going to take a second or third generation of vaccines where you have 95% efficacy uh, before you get there. But a lot of it comes back by next summer to fall. Dr. Jha, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.
2: In a happy mood at STAT this week. Five years ago, some pretty smart people got together in Boston and decided it was the right time to create a digital publication dedicated to reporting on health and
1: medicine.
0: And it was from those conversations that STAT was born.
1: The timing of STAT's launch arguably couldn't have been better. Over the last five years, STAT reporters have covered some incredible medical and scientific advances like CRISPR genome editing, cell and gene therapy, We've reported on the opioid crisis, the fierce debate over drug pricing, the intersection of technology and healthcare, and, of course, a
0: global pandemic. And as somewhat of an outsider, I feel like I can pile on the compliments a little more here. And I think the moment that I realized STAT was really something different and important in the world of health reporting was when I saw Atul Gawande tweet about it in January 2016. He said, gotta say, although STAT News is just two months old, it's already my indispensable source of medical and science news. Of course, he may not feel the same way now, but we'll get to that.
2: Yeah, we will get to that. So, regular listeners to this podcast know Rick Burke as our executive producer. He's also the executive editor of Stat, which makes him our boss. Rick was one of those smart folks in the room when Stat was envisioned and launched, and he joins us now to give his perspective on our fifth birthday. Rick, congratulations and welcome back to the podcast.
4: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I just want to say about Read Out Loud Rebecca Robbins pushed us to New Heights as co-host of this podcast, but I'm so thrilled that Meg's joining us because there's no one better to fill the shoes of Rebecca Robbins. Meg, we did a worldwide search and it started with Meg and ended with Meg. She's the one. And welcome aboard.
0: Well, thank you very much. And uh, Rebecca's shoes are huge ones to fill, and I can't even try. But um, I'll try a little bit. So on to the questions. Um, the first one is, how does it feel to be the father of a five-year-old?
4: Well, <laughs> can, I, can I go back to the mention of Atul? Because I, I have to tell you something <laughs> about that Atul tweet. Because that meant a lot. Someone so respected as Atul Gawandi giving his stamp to stat but I'll tell you something funny. There's someone else that really meant a lot to me uh, when he tweeted out about Stat. This man said, Stat's a real legitimate outfit. And who was that person? Martin Skrelly. And at the time, he wasn't in jail or anything. And he was kind of a big name in biotech. And I thought, wow, this is cool. And I literally had the tweet blown up and posted all around our office. To, and I went around saying, someone's taking us seriously. Do you believe that, that that I, that I was looking to
1: Martin Scully
4: for validation?
0: No.
1: <laughs> well, I'm still looking to Martin Scully for validation, but the next question we had prepared at least was, what has surprised you the most about STAT over the last five years?
4: I think what surprised me is the journalism we've done. Like I could not have imagined the accountability journalism that we've been able to do, I couldn't imagine that we would be the first ones to warn the world of COVID coming from China. I wouldn't have believed that we would win a years-long lawsuit against Purdue Pharma. And the other thing that's really surprised me that I never would have guessed is the passion that our readers have for STAT. In the beginning, like five years ago, you'd run into people and either they wouldn't know what stat was or they love stat but there's no in between now the the proportion of people who know stat is much higher and there's a real passion there for what we do i get notes all the time from literally around the world with people saying thank god for stat like what did we do before you invented stat and it's really nice to see that we become such a trusted resource for people
0: so take us back to the beginning. What was your worst fear about accepting the offer to run STAT and to start it up? I mean, what kept you up at night in those early days?
4: Well, Meg, besides moving to cold Boston and, <laughs> and frankly, not being an expert on life sciences and never starting a startup, that, those were a few things that kept me up at night. <laughs> but, but, but to tell you the truth, I was excited about the opportunity from the very beginning. But the one thing I f- feared journalistically is I thought I'm going to really be pushing reporters to be faster and more provocative in writing about science and medicine. And knowing how sensitive and tricky and complicated those subjects are, I worried that what if we make a mistake? This is tough stuff. And I remembered a piece in the New York Times. Uh, in their style section, they got a lot of controversy. And I can say this because I used to work at the Times. And it was about how you can get cancer from your cell phone. And the, it didn't go through the science desk. And it, but it, and it quoted some quack people who didn't know what they were talking about. And it was really discredited. And I read that story thinking, oh, my God, I wouldn't have known any better. Like, I don't want us to make that kind of mistake in my pushing for like provocative, interesting stories, our credibility is the most important thing. And so what I did was hire the best, most authoritative reporters I could find who I didn't think would make a mistake like that. And thank God, knock on wood, that in five years, We've never made a mistake like that.
0: So Stat's been criticized by some healthcare media watchdogs for accepting advertising and sponsorship money from biotech and pharma companies, the same companies that Stat reporters write about. How do you respond to these questions about potential conflicts of interest?
4: I'm not worried about our advertisers. We were on a, a years-long lawsuit and spent a lot of money to take on Purdue Pharma, yet they advertised with us and you know, they're welcome to do that. We've had advertisers pull their sponsorships because of some of our stories. We've never pulled punches. And that's one of the benefits, frankly, of a business that not only has advertising, but is founded in like stat plus subscribers, because they can't pull sponsorships. If there's a story that that they don't like, they can cancel their subscription. But so there's a certain freedom in doing that. And um, there's never been one example ever of us pulling back out of fear of uh, of an advertiser. So I'm not at all concerned about people in biotech and pharma advertising with us. So
1: Rick, before we let you go, we want to test your knowledge of some stat trivia Jeopardy style. We'll give you a set of clues, and then you can answer in the form of a question. Are you ready?
4: This is stat Jeopardy, right?
2: Exactly. Okay. Um, This awkward mashup of two common words was Stat's original name.
4: What is
2: Bionomy? Correct. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And thank God we didn't use that name, I have to say.
4: That was another thing that kept me up at night. I don't want us to be called, I don't want to be the editor of Bionomy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm also glad that when I go on CNBC and have to report on one of you guys's massive scoops, I don't have to be like, Bionomy is reporting. <laughs> OK, next question. Stat sent a reporter to this country in West Africa to report on genetically altered mosquitoes.
4: Uh, what is or where is Burkina Faso? Correct. Do you remember who that was? That was Ike. Ike Sweatlets. And he kept wanting to go back to do more stories. And I said, Ike, you can only go once.
1: So the next clue, when Rick Burke, and of course that's you, decides that Stats Boston office needs a pizza lunch, this ubiquitous chain gets the order, even though there are dozens of ostensibly better pizza places nearby.
4: Now, Damien, that is not fair. <laughs> <because> <laughs> that's That's not the answer
1: to the question, Rick.
4: We have tried different places, but I would say the most frequent... Is what is Domino's, and that is because
0: wow. that
4: is because I like their thin crust mushroom and pepperoni.
0: Correct. Wow, that's not even pizza. That's like cheese and sauce on a cracker.
4: And Domino's wait, wait, wait. is more reliable. <laughs> I mean, they get, and they're cheaper. I have to watch the budget here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This simple but memorable catchphrase was penned by stat reporter Rebecca Robbins to describe the gender imbalance of presenters at the 2018 J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. The phrase went viral and became a biotech meme.
4: What is Michael's? What is, is that the right? Eh, Close enough. It's what is the Michael's? The Michael's. What is the Michaels? And as you say, Meg, that caused a sensation as you probably remember at JPM, where everyone was saying, and they still say it for years, like what, um, how many Michaels are on the stage compared to women CEOs?
0: This is less of a Jeopardy question, but you can answer it in a question form anyway. This is Rick Burke's favorite moment on The Read Out Loud.
4: Oh, what is when you mention my name? (laughs) I think we do that every we do that every episode. Oh, oh favorite time ever? On, ever, <laughs> yeah, ever on the read out loud, like ever? Yeah. I guess what pops in my head is Josiah Zayner. Like that was spellbinding.
0: <laughs> Self-declared internet's favorite scientist.
1: I believe so. Yeah. If you
4: haven't heard that interview, you should, it's worth going back in the archives.
1: Well, Rick, thank you for joining us. This has been a delight, and and we will wait. Maybe five more years before we uh, do a Jeopardy contest hey, again. Hey,
4: I'm not a radio guy. I'm, I'm not an <laughs> audio guy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'd rather be on the other end listening to you all every week, which I do. But thanks for giving it a try with me. I appreciate it.
2: Hyacinth, <laughs> cue the outro music, please.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, I want to uh, make a mea culpa for a mistake I made last week when I misstated the date of the presidential election. It is November 3rd. My apologies to presumably the many people who uh, changed their voting plans on account of uh, of my mistake.
0: Damien is literally the only person who does not know what day the election is. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado who produced this week's episode.
2: Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as you just heard, That's Rick's favorite part of the show.
0: (laughs) And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and when you'll be ready to attend a concert. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And as always, if you like what we do, you can leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.
0: See you next week.